7, if you would, please. And I'm grateful to see all of you here tonight. I, I didn't know what to expect on this Sunday evening on uh, July 4th weekend, but I am glad to see all of you have gathered here. Uh, this is the beginning of the third quarter, so we've come to our regularly observance of the Lord's Supper. And I really even hate to begin that way because I don't want you to think that we're here tonight simply because this is something on our schedule. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a very special time for God's people. Uh, it ought to have meaning to every one of us, and it really really does have meaning in the life of a Christian. So it's not something that we just tack on to the end of the service so that we can say we've fulfilled one more of our church obligations. And this is really one of the reasons why we've changed the way that we do this. I, I think I mention this almost every time that we have the Lord's Supper, that I like to lengthen out the time between the supper because it gets us, just gives us a special opportunity to look forward to this. Now, what I like to do is take this time and focus on some particular aspect of the supper, just talk to you a little bit about that, and you can imagine how hard that becomes uh, to devote an entire sermon to the Lord's Supper if you're doing this 12 times a year. When I preach a sermon on Easter or preach a sermon on Christmas, I only do that one time a year, but it's hard to come up with another Christmas sermon. It's hard to come up with a, another Easter sermon, that, something that you haven't heard before. So trying to do this 12 times a year would be difficult for me and, and even might become boring to you. I hope that it wouldn't. And we don't often recycle messages around here. And I heard a preacher once told me that if a, a message was worth preaching once, it's worth preaching twice. And I think that I could buy into that if you put enough time between them. But I also knew another preacher that thought if you preached a sermon once, it was worth preaching 20 times. And um, if you just changed the title, nobody would know the difference. But we don't, I don't recycle too many sermons uh, so it's difficult to come back to the subject over and over again. But have you ever thought about that? I mean, we do have major doctrines in the Bible that are found in many different texts. And so we go back to those things and we, pre we, we repeat some of the same themes. Even though it's not the same message, we do repeat the same themes. And if you think about that, how many times have you heard a message about salvation? And how many times have you heard a message about evangelism? And how many times have you heard a message about the cross? When does that ever get old? I mean, God's people like to hear those same old themes over and over again. And that's the way it is when we come to the Lord's Supper. It has a gospel theme to it. So we like to hear it about it again. Here in the 26th verse of chapter 11, Paul said, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. So we want to look at this familiar text once again tonight. There is a gospel theme here. That's what verse number 26 says. So I'm not going to say anything new to you tonight. Uh, this will be another refresher. We'll talk about the importance of this wonderful gospel ordinance. But I'd like for us to begin in verse number 17 because I, I want to talk to you first this evening about some issues that were going on in the Corinthian church regarding the supper. So in 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 17... It says, Now in this I declare unto you, this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. 
When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, the Corinthian church is a church that had many problems. If this church was a poster child or could be a poster child for a troubled church, if it was that, then you would have seen this the picture of this church plastered all over milk cartons and in open post offices and telephone poles all around the town because there were many different troubles in the Corinthian church. Now, if we look in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, we find that Paul gets to the problem very quickly because he says this in, in one of the first statements in chapter 1. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the household of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So that's problem number one in the Corinthian church. I don't know if you remember when we studied 1 Corinthians and we talked about many problems. They had a problem with immorality in that church and uh, lots of different things that are going on. But this is problem number one. There are divisions in the church. And we read the same thing in the 11th chapter when it begins to speak about the Lord's Supper. He says, I hear, in verse number 18, I hear that there be divisions among you. And then Paul makes a remarkable statement right after that. And he says, for there must be heresies among you. And he said the reason that we ha- you have those heresies is so that you can determine which people are following Christ and which people are not. Heresies, divisions are an indication. Those who are perpetrators of that are an indication whether that person is actually following the Lord. So in one statement, it appears that he's very upset that there are these divisions. And then in the next, he seems to be happy about that because it, he says it helps to point out the heresies. It helps to point out the people in the church that are heretics and which aren't. Now, I can honestly say that I, that I hope that that's not the way we have to find out if we have heretics in Berean Baptist Church. I mean, I hope it doesn't come down to the divisions. I hope it doesn't come down to people being angry with one another and sitting on one side or the other of the aisle because there are divisions among us. And Paul says, when you get together, when you come to take the Lord's Supper, if there are divisions among you, then you can't take it. So this church was like that. There were heresies, heresies fostered division, and in turn, that showed up in a deplorable way in which they celebrated the supper. Now, I want you to notice first this evening, as we talk about those problems in the Corinthian church, first of all is the desecration of the supper. Now, in this church, the Lord's Supper was mostly like a church food fellowship, only 
without the fellowship. It was just church food. That's what they did. It was like a food fight, a food fest. And the most important thing to these people was who gets in the buffet line first? Who who gets served first? How much can we get before anybody else gets any or anybody else gets there? That's what Paul says in the 21st verse. He says, For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. Now, this is something that's not uncommon in the, or wasn't uncommon in the first church. Uh, They often had a regular meal along with the Lord's Supper. Before they would have the Lord's Supper, they would eat their regular meal. And then when they were finished with that, they would take out the the unleavened bread, and they would take out the the juice, the, the grape juice, and then they would begin to observe the supper. In fact, on the night that Jesus instituted the supper, you remember that it was Passover night. And that's what Passover was. It was a meal. It's a meal that included bread. It included eating a roasted lamb with bitter herbs. And so they combined that meal with the Lord's Supper. Now, uh, I, I, uh, you know, eating roasted lamb, I'd rather eat garlic than eat lamb. So that's not a good idea for me. But that's what they did in that first church. So the Passover, that, that's what Jesus was celebrating. But by the time that, that we come to the Apostle Paul and he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Passover's over with. There's no need for the Passover anymore. Uh, they, Christ has been crucified. It's no longer necessary. Christ died on the cross. But the practice of combining a meal with the Lord's Supper went on in the church for a long, long time after this. So it was sort of like when we have a food fellowship here. I mean, sometimes we'll, we'll have a potluck dinner and people bring all of their stuff and put it on the table over there and you get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Everybody comes through the line and they start filling up the paper plates and some of them get so full you start stacking it up and you get sideboards on the plates to make sure that you hold everything. Now imagine what it would be like if everybody tried to get to that line first and there was pushing and there was shoving well, there is some of that, come to think of that. But there are, you know, people pushing and shoving, trying to be the first ones in the line. Think about 50 people trying to get through the line first and then hoarding up everything that they could get. And then the people at the end of the line get nothing because everybody that ate first made sure that they got their plates filled and they were full. That's what you have going on in the Lord's Supper in this, in this particular place. I mean, if you, if you have that idea in your head, then you've nailed what the Corinthian church was doing. Verse number 21 is simply a statement that there is everybody for himself. Every man for himself. Make sure that I'm fed and that I don't go hungry. Now, that kind of system causes the Lord's Supper to be desecrated. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is because the purpose of the Lord's Supper is communion. And in this church, they had no communion among the members. Probably most of you have heard the term Eucharist. Some people call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. And that's a perfectly acceptable term. The word Eucharist actually means communion. That's what the the original word means. So they were concerned about nobody but themselves. There was no communion Now, when you think about communion, it fosters the idea of sharing. And there was no sharing. Now, we do need to to, to understand this. And and I make the point often when we talk about the Lord's Supper, it is a time of communion, but we have to remember which communion comes first. It's not a communion primarily between members of the church. 
It's communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have in our minds first. We have the Lord Jesus Christ in our minds first. We have communion with him. And then the Bible teaches us that when we are in communion with him, that every person who is in communion with him is also in communion with one another. In other words, you have fellowship with Christ, then you have fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what John tells us in 1 John. And uh, this passage that I want to read to you is not talking about the Lord's Supper, but it does apply. It says uh, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. And so there's what you see happens. It automatically happens this way. When we are one with Christ and when we are walking in the light, then we are in fellowship with all others that are in Christ and also walking in the light. Now, again, they had the idea of the common meal along with the Lord's Supper. And that's not necessarily bad. We don't find a prohibition in the scripture against that it doesn't say that you can't do it that way i don't like to do it that way leith and i have an agreement no food fellowships on the night that we have the lord's supper and the reason that i do that is because i don't want you to be thinking about how much you're going to eat i don't want you to think about whether you're going to get fed at a buffet line i want you to be thinking about the elements that we see right before us tonight concentrate on that concentrate on the bread concentrate on the cup on those elements because that's the most important part of the supper so paul says when you come together and you have that idea when you have selfishness in your mind that is antithetical to the purpose of the lord's supper it is not communion so he says in verse number 22 don't you have houses to eat and to drink in And he's saying, if you came together for that purpose, that you're worried about selfishness, worried about what you eat, when you get together like that, you cannot partake in the Lord's Supper. It's not to observe the Supper. So in other words, what he's saying to them, it's just better that you stay home. Now, I have enough trouble getting people to come to church. I don't want to cause another problem and tell people, well, it's just better that you stay home if that's why you come. So we're not going to have food along with the Lord's Supper. The Bible's not opposed to it. There is no scripture that says that you can't, but there's none that says that you have to either. So we'll just concentrate on what we do with the supper. Now, the second thing about the church here that was a desecration of the supper was that they had no comprehension of the memorial. In other words, the Lord's Supper had lost the meaning to them. Now, I can't think of anything that's more solemn and more moving than Christ sitting down with his disciples and there in a very vivid picture demonstrating what was about to happen to him. And when you read here verses 24 and and 25, these are riveting verses. And you can just imagine the look that was on the disciples' face when Jesus said this to them. Here he is sitting with all of them and he says, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. What was the look on their faces when Jesus said that? Well, I can tell you this much. They weren't confused. They weren't confused thinking, well, you know what he's just told us? He just said that we're getting ready to eat his flesh. 
We're getting ready to drink his blood physically. We're going to partake of the Lord's body. They weren't confused about that. They weren't thinking, well, he's going to do some kind of hocus-pocus here, that he's going to do like the Roman Catholic Church does, that there'll be transubstantiation and, and these elements will be turned actually into Christ's flesh and the priest will actually consecrate the cup and turn it into Christ's blood. They had no confusion about that whatsoever. But still, it was a stunning emblem to them. Jesus said, this represents what's going to happen to me. And so Jesus was showing them his body would be broken. He was showing them that blood would flow down from him. He would be nailed to the cross. He would be wounded at the cross. He would die at the cross. And that blood that was shed would be the payment for their sins. Do you understand the real importance of that? If their sins are paid for, if their sins are all taken care of so that God no longer looks upon that sin, that means that they can come into communion with him. You can't get into communion with Christ with your sins upon you. And that means they have to be paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. That has to be settled, has to be taken care of. There is no fellowship with God unless our sins have been forgiven. So he showed it to the disciples, what would happen to them. And we're doing the same thing tonight. As you look at the supper, you are Christ's disciples. And you're seeing the very same things that Jesus did as I break that bread and as we pour that cup. We're showing that solemn emblem of the body and blood of the Lord. So we never want to let this suffering Savior, the idea of the suffering Savior, escape our thoughts. Know what this is for. Remember what it's for. And if you come here tonight just because it's the rote ritual, it's just the thing that we do on the first quarter of every quarter of the year, or the first, first day of the quarter of the year, if this is what you do, this is why you're here, then you are desecrating the supper. You don't understand what the memorial is about. So that's the problem that Paul identifies in verses 17 through 22. They're guilty of desecrating the supper. They're guilty of misunderstanding communion and misunderstanding the memorial. Now, we go on into the next verses, and next we find that there is an explanation of the supper. And this is the part where Paul teaches them what the supper is actually about. Now, we notice in verse number 23, he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. I have received of the Lord. And that begs a question. How did Paul get the information? What does he mean when he says, I received this from the Lord? Did Paul read it in a book? Did he have a commentary that he could look all of this up and see what the Lord's Supper is about? Who told him about it? Was Paul there when the supper was given? No. Paul wasn't even saved at that time. In fact... Paul couldn't even have read about it in, in the gospel accounts that record the Lord's Supper. You know, conservative Bible scholars agree on this, that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians before Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. Now, there's some people who have the idea that what the gospel writers did is that they were traveling along with Jesus, and he was doing the many things that he did, and they were taking notes. And they saw him do something, they wrote that down, and they had a little journal that they kept, and they compiled all of that into the different gospel accounts after Jesus died. But Mark and Luke weren't there for the supper. They're not even apostles. So they didn't get their information from a first-hand account. 
None of the gospel accounts were actually written until years afterwards. And Jesus told the disciples on the night of the Lord's Supper, he says, here's how you're going to remember all of these things. In John 14, verse 26, he says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So there wasn't a one of them that were taking notes. None of them were writing down what Jesus said. If you want to know how the day remember all of this, years and years afterwards, after it happened, how did they recall the exact words that Jesus said? You know, I, w- I wouldn't want to be guilty of misquoting the Lord. How are you going to write this in the Bible? How are you going to write down what God wants us to know if what all you can do is just remember things? And you have no idea, well, did he actually say it that way? You know, there's certain little nuances in Scripture that if you just say them in just a little bit different way, it completely changes the meaning. So what we read in the Scriptures is exactly what Jesus said. And the way that they were able to recall it is Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come. And the Holy Spirit will show you. He'll, he'll recall all of these things to your memory so you can write this down. And so you have Mark's gospel. Well, where did he get that information? Well, most likely, Peter was the source of the information. He just told it to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. Luke tells us where he got his information. In chapter 1, and verse number 2, he says he received it from the apostles. So they told him. So this account of the Lord's Supper, he wasn't there, but the, the apostles told him about it. Now, one of the amazing things that we see about this text in 1 Corinthians is that this is the earliest account that we have of the Lord's Supper. And how did Paul receive it? Well, he didn't get it from the other apostles. He didn't get it from reading the gospel accounts where it's recorded also. He got it directly from Jesus Christ. That means that he had to get it from the resurrected Lord. That means the one who died on the cross, the one who was put into the grave. This is proof that he's the resurrected Lord because Paul was able to receive this information and write it down exactly as Jesus said it. So here then we find the, the explanation of the supper. Let me give you three accomplishments that we find in the Lord's Supper. First of all, it's a reflection of the past. The Lord's Supper is a look back at the past. Now, we could say that it's a remembrance in one sense of the observance of the Passover. Now, I'll, I'll briefly review that for you. I know that you're familiar with it. But Passover is the celebration of Israel's deliverance from bondage in Egypt. God sent nine plagues on Pharaoh. He told Pharaoh, you've got to let my people to go. But Pharaoh consistently refused to let them out of Egypt. God sent nine plagues. Then God finally sent one last plague. And that was the plague of the death angel, the, death, uh, the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God said the death angel is going to come. But he also told Moses that there is a way to escape that. He said, take a lamb, kill that lamb, spread its blood on the doorpost and the lintel of your houses. Then go inside the house, go under the blood, go into the house, eat the lamb, and there you will be protected from the death angel. So they ate the lamb, they ate the unleavened bread, they ate it with the bitter herbs. And Passover was observed every year. It was a reminder of God's deliverance. And so on the night that Jesus was, just before he was crucified, 
he was betrayed by Judas and, and, and they were celebrating the Passover and that's when Jesus gave them the true meaning of what Passover was all about. There's where they really discovered and made the connections between Passover and Jesus. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 in a passage that you're familiar with because I read it often. He said, Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So there Paul identifies Passover with the sacrifice of Christ. And so the picture that comes out of it is that little innocent lamb, the lamb that was killed and his blood that was taken and that blood spread on the doors, that was a symbol of Jesus. That's the symbol of the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God sacrificed for us. And when they walked into the house under that blood, it symbolized that when a person has his heart covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, when it has been applied to him, then he's safe from the wrath of God. And friends, that is the only way a person will ever be saved from God's wrath. All of us are under God's wrath unless we've been covered and protected by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the Lord's Supper then is to remember that. It's to reflect upon the death of Jesus. Now most of us don't want to remember death. We don't like death. We do our best to forget about death. You, you don't want to remember the funeral of your loved ones. And when you think about someone in your family that dies, you don't say, well, they sure had a great funeral. I wish we could go back there and celebrate it again. Well, you don't think about that. You don't think about the funeral. You think about their life. You think about all the good things, the good times that you had in their life. But Jesus did not give us the Lord's Supper to remember his life. Now, his life was great. His life was perfect. We needed that perfect life. But his life without his death would have no meaning to us whatsoever. He wants us to reflect upon his death because unless that blood is shed on the cross of Calvary, there is no salvation. I said a moment ago, there is no protection from wrath. So everybody needs to know that. Everybody in the room tonight needs to know that you need to remember his death. So Jesus says, reflect on the past. Remember what he did. Every time that we come to the supper, every time we eat the bread, every time we take of that cup, we remember the body of Jesus, we remember his blood, we remember it's poured out on the cross of Calvary, and the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And that means there is no forgiveness unless his blood is shed. So it must be applied to the heart. And that's a question every one of us here tonight needs to ask ourselves. Has the blood been applied to our heart? Are we really believers? Have we really been covered under the blood of Christ by faith in him? So today, we celebrate this as a reflection of the past. We're not remembering Passover, we're remembering the cross. So we take the bread, we remember his body, take the cup, remember his blood. It's a reflection on the past. But that's not all, because the Lord's Supper also accomplishes a proclamation in the present. This is what it tells us in verse number 26. He says, For as often as ye eat this bread... And drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. Now, if you'll notice there the word show, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, that's a word that comes from a word that means to proclaim. It actually means to preach. 
17 times that word is used in the New Testament, and it's translated variously as preach, declare, show, teach, and speech. And so that tells us that every time we come together to observe the Lord's Supper, we are actually proclaiming something. We're preaching a sermon. And that's why you hear me say, the Lord's Supper is a preaching ordinance. We're declaring something here. In fact, the Lord's Supper does a better job telling us about the death of Jesus Christ than I could ever do. It's the perfect picture of this. Now, someone had said, a picture is worth a thousand words. And when you sit here and you watch what is done here and you are reflecting upon the cross of Jesus Christ, this speaks volumes. It speaks thousands, ten thousands of words. I could never do a better job of explaining what Christ did than what we do in the supper. So it's a preaching ordinance. This is why I don't ask people that are not members of the church to leave when we observe the Lord's Supper. Now, we do practice closed communion. We do believe that. But I never ask anybody to leave. And that's because I cannot preach to a person. I cannot tell a person about Jesus Christ any better than showing them what takes place in the Lord's Supper and talking about that, actually seeing what we do here. That is a proclamation. It's a preaching ordinance. So if I want to talk about the sacrifice of Christ, what better thing than I could, could I do than to have them to observe the Lord's Supper? So the Lord's Supper is a proclamation in the present. It's one of the ways that we present the gospel to people. It's how we tell people about Christ that are dying and on their way to hell. The picture is not going to save anybody. If I thought that it could, then I'd make sure everybody took it. I'd stand out on the street corners and give it to people. But the picture doesn't save anybody. What the picture represents will save you. And that's the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a third accomplishment in the supper. It is also a glorious expectation of the future. Now, for three years... Almost, we've been studying the book of Revelation, and we've consistently talked about this glorious expectation of the future. Now, let me encourage you about something when you think about the Lord's Supper. Don't come here like you're coming to an autopsy. Don't come to the Lord's Supper with sorrow. Don't, don't come here like this is the funeral of Jesus Christ. We don't come here for that. We come to the supper with a glorious expectation. It's a joyous time for us. So we're not sorrowing over the fact that Christ died. He never tells us to sorrow about his death. He wants us to recognize his death and what's that, what that's for and rejoice in the fact that he gave his life for us. There's joyous expectation. There is anticipation in this preaching ordinance. Now, the last part of verse 26 says, Ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And that is the glorious expectation. Jesus is coming back. Now, if you want to be told the full story of the gospel, you start right in here in what we're doing. We, we, we know about the life of Christ. We know the fact that he died. This memorial shows us that he died. And he also says, You do show the Lord's death till he come. And so it must mean then that he arose from the grave. That's the third part. That's the ratifying part of the gospel. The fact that Jesus arose from the dead. And so that's a glorious expectation. Now Jesus said this in Matthew 26 verse 29. But I say unto you, I will not drink for, henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you 
in my Father's kingdom. Now, you can think about the glorious expectation in this way. Every time that we take the Lord's Supper, it might be the last time that we take it. Now, it could happen in two ways. I might die, you might die before we ever take it again. Or Jesus could come back. And then the next time that we take it then would be with him when we take it at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I do hope that tonight is the last time. I'm not hoping that I die before the next quarter, but I'm hoping that Jesus comes back. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, if I do have to die before then, I have that, that hope that I have my faith in him, that I will die in him, that I will see him, and I will be a part of the glorious kingdom that's coming upon the earth. So the next time that I take it, and maybe the next time you take it, is when the Bible describes it as our faith ending in sight. So that's the wonderful explanation that Paul gives of the supper. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of proclamation. It's a time of expectation. Then he shows us we don't want to be guilty of desecrating the supper. We need to remember what it's for. We need to rejoice that Christ died for us and that he is coming again. Now that concludes what I wanted to talk to you about the supper tonight. In the next quarter, we'll come back and we'll have the privilege of talking about some other aspect of it one more time. And as I said, that's, that's, even that's anticipation, I think. Uh, we'll, we'll have to, if Christ doesn't come, we will do it again because that's what he's commanded us to do.